Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. Good news. It looks like Indiana Grandma's, Mima's, and her furry, horned, face-painted, organic QAnon shamans are safe for now from the FBI's grasp because they are going to start going after parents who dare to protest grotesque policy at the schools that they pay for. Yeah, this, those school board mamas, they're dangerous, dangerous. Um, that was a, a turn of events I did not predict. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, and you probably do because you're listening to our show, so you're a cool person. Uber-informed. One of the hyper-informed people. The Biden DOJ has announced that it is going to be investigating, um, I'm not really sure what, danger, threats, danger, um, intimidation um, from parents who go to school board meetings to protest critical race theory and mask mandates. Um, Okay, well, I mean, are there any violent, like, other than people just going and kind of yelling, are is there any cases of like actual violence? Like, are there, is there th- literal threats made against these people? I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't heard of any. I'm not saying there aren't any. I just, I haven't heard. Julie, have you heard anything about that? <clears throat> so apparently, obviously this is coming from a directive out of the um, uh, National Education Association who thinks that parents who are protesting um whatever is happening at the schools that they pay for and any taxpayer, especially like say in Illinois or most states, the majority of your real estate property tax bill goes to fund your local public schools. And so um, Randy, is it Randy Weingarten? I'm trying to find her, uh, her directive um, that these parents who protest should be considered basically domestic terrorists because aren't we all? I mean, all 75 million people who voted for Trump, or even if you're not a Trump supporter, if you just think like, ooh, I don't want my eight-year-old to learn about creepy, tran-like sexual behavior in second grade, like let's just focus on maybe, you know, two plus two or how to put a sentence together. Um, or, of course, critical race theory or mask mandates or anything else. These people should be designated domestic terrorists. Um, and so it looks like Merrick Garland, i.e. also known as Lisa Monaco, because, of course, Merrick Garland is not running anything in DOJ. This is all from Lisa Monaco. Um, now is going to allow the FBI to work with local law enforcement um, to protect school board members from you know, people who want to protest. Yeah. From P you mean people who go to the school board meetings. I mean, it's, it's, it's really obscene to say that parents cannot go attend a school board meeting and give their input about how their kids are educated. That is just obscene. Now, I don't know, are there people making violent threats and calling up and saying, I'm going to kill you, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that's terrible. And if that's, true, then those people, whoever those specific individuals are that are doing that, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's a problem. But people who just show up and talk and say that they don't, you know, that they're, that they are not pleased with 
their kids learning or writing about anal sex experiences in high school uh, or middle school or however early they're starting this program, kindergarten, I don't know. Um, that's outrageous. I think this is such a tone deaf political move because, you know, there's a chunk of of Democrat voters who, you know, they vote Democrat out of habit. They probably aren't aware of just how progressive the party is in practice. And so these people mindlessly pull the levers for the Democrat every time there's an election. And it's cool because all their cool friends are Democrats. But when you start fucking with people's kids, yeah, you know, that's different. You know, that's a totally different thing. And you kind of saw that with some of the parents angry about their Tony eight eighty thousand dollar a year woke schools in New York City when they were like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you're going a little too far here when their little prince or princess was being told, you know, that they were oppressors and like Hitler um, because their skin was white. So I right. think that this is really red pilling a new group of people, a new contingent of people i mean it's it's kind of a tired the way that the media always portrays these as some like highly organized right-wing trumpaloo maga freaks that are doing this at the school boards because it's not it's actual regular parents that are like no so well and and i have a correction this was the national school board association letter but this was based on comments that randy weingarten had made a few weeks ago calling these parents domestic terrorists so this letter to the biden administration says that threats against school board members could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes uh the school board association believes immediate assistance is required to protect our students school board members and educators who are susceptible to acts of violence affecting interstate commerce because of threats to their district's family personal safety etc so then you drag in the optics of not just angry parents speaking at the school board meetings but of course school board members shutting off microphones you remember the man a few uh months ago who was arrested in suburban virginia i believe because yeah. he continued to speak past whatever the allotted public speaking time is, which is usually a minute or a couple minutes anyway, shutting off microphones, just getting up and walking out before public comment, which is a which is a law in for any public meeting. You have to have public comment. Um, and so they're just shutting off what really is the law that giving taxpayers public comment. Um, and so they are saying that those people, and then they, they get to say, well, we're protecting ourselves by shutting off public comment because we're being berated. We're being threatened by these parents. The cops, of course, are walking in, helping to arrest and criminalize what is free speech. Or I would say paid, not free, it's paid for speech. When you pay thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in property taxes every year to your local school district or districts, you've paid for the right to speak out. Um, no, absolutely. <clears throat> this is why it's so critical that states or I guess federal, I guess this would have to be done federally, where <clears throat> we have some kind of federal law that that explicitly states that your education dollars as a taxpayer follow your kid to school and not automatically goes to your school district. That way, there, you know, there these people showing up at the school board meetings are basically just hostages of the school district, right? I mean, they could 
choose to send their kid to private school, but that assumes, you know, you have the money on top of your property taxes. That's right. To pay for private school, at least in this area, private school is the same as like Harvard. It's very right. expensive. So, in, you know, I think some of the Catholic schools are not quite as expensive, but you know, you get my, you get my point. But one thing I wonder, Julie, maybe you can help clarify this for me. Do you feel like maybe a sitting senator like Kristen Cinema is also entitled to that level of protection from people screaming and yelling at them. Um, what I'm referring to is Kristen right. Cinema's unfortunate experience into the, a bathroom. She was teaching a class at ASU, which is a garbage school. I'm just saying. <laughs> It is You're such a, party. a snob. Okay? It's a party school. It looks school. like a lot of fun it's, to me. Well, you know, we have different. It's approaches. a party school. Okay. And um, your and point. She, so this woman, well, I guess she was teaching a class. She went to go to take a bathroom break and go in the bathroom. And some protester followed her in reading off some message off her phone. Well, this woman, well, well Senator Cinema was was peeing i mean and then another person accosted her on an airplane while she was flying back i guess to dc i mean is that acceptable if you can't have parents stand up and say something to their school board and that that they're unhappy about but it's perfectly fine to literally follow someone into a bathroom it's terrible well wait didn't joe biden just say that's part of the process like it is for you well i mean yeah, he did say that. He said, look, it, it, what was it, par for the course? He doesn't Let's, remember that he said it, but he did say it. He did say it. Well, <laughs> right. Yeah. Try, I'm, yeah. I mean, they don't let anyone get near Biden. So cause they don't want him to get sick. They don't want him to get the virus because he's already. Oh. Yeah. You know. And we have to talk about his weird rambling this week, which was like, I don't even know what he was talking about. Or. Um, the, all the people lined up in Michigan for his speech who, I'm sorry, the fuck Joe Biden thing has to be the funniest Let's thing. Let's go, happen Brandon. <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. All right. Explain that for people who, you know. If you don't, don't know this joke. So I think there was a reporter, maybe it was NBC. Was it an NBC reporter? I think so. Yes. Um, yes. An NBC reporter was interviewing someone. Was it at a NASCAR game? Yep. Not a game. I said, see how dumb I don't even know NASCAR. I called it a game, NASCAR game. I don't know. Was it a NASCAR, NASCAR tournament? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, at NASCAR, and she was interviewing some driver whose first name was Brandon. I don't know any. All I know is the hoax guy who Obviously, was in NASCAR. Obviously, you don't know. Obviously. I don't know any of the drivers. Anyway, okay. she was interviewing uh, this Brandon person about the race, and in the background, people are shouting, fuck Joe Biden, which is a thing now. <laughs> At all these big sporting events around the country, especially colleges, the crowds are chanting, fuck Joe Biden. Well, anyway, Perfect. so this reporter is talking to Brandon and she said, oh, the crowd, they're chanting, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> it's like <laughs> everyone listening. It's hilarious. So anyway, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think it's it's so funny so yeah um it's so funny and I mean and I think today there was even so now it's a hashtag and it's just hashtag fjb because maybe it takes a little bit of time before Jack figures out what that means 
I don't know. I saw a shirt that was like the la- the NASCAR logo, but it just said, let's go, Brandon. Like, it was, <laughs> it was awesome. It's just really funny. But yeah, I it see is. all these shirts now. FJB. People yeah. are chanting, fuck Joe Biden. And, they're, right. and the media obviously is not covering it. And it's not like just one or two. It's right. happened. It's been happening for like, what, a month now where at all these sporting events, the crowd is shouting, fuck Joe Biden. I mean, it really did start with college football. I feel like that was that's sort of when it started, or at least that's when I saw it or most people saw it. And then I think it happened at like a Yankees Mets game. Um <laughs> So it's just like taking off and and Biden is aware of it because I think he mentioned it during his rambling speech the other day about his dad, who I think was now an oil rig was, was worker he or something. 20,000 gallons of gas. That thing. What was, what what the was that? What was that? I don't that? know. Do you remember that we got rid of this like barbaric uncouth carnival barker and now we have this what like like how erudite articulate orator this guy's mumbles how did this how did how did we get to this lowly place i mean honestly it's um i don't know what i don't know can you imagine working for in the Biden White House or being on the advanced team or one of his minders, every time that guy gets in front of a microphone, you have to shit your pants. You have no idea what the hell is going to come out of his mouth. You, you know, don't. it's got to be pretty scary. You Although don't. The and same they, was true with Trump, to be fair. I mean, but in a different way. <laughs> but at least he was funny. Like, yeah. well, that's why you have that shrew that you can hear at the end of every public availability or press availability who is screaming um thank you okay guys gotta go thank you all right let's go let's go come on guys let's go let's go come on guys it's like get out get out get out (laughs) and she's like grab like physically grabbing these reporters they don't want they don't want to they don't god forbid they don't want him answering questions as we know because joe biden has told us that he was said he's not supposed to answer questions (laughs) remember He's, He's like, I'm told not to answer questions. Okay. For real. For real. I'm going to get in trouble. For real. For real, folks. That's normal. Um, yeah. I just, um, wow. So, but uh, there's new, apparently new poll numbers out today. Just everything is crashing for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Um, his it, His approval ratings are completely tanking. Except I think they're tied with white college educated people who can we just get rid of these people? I know. Yeah. I mean, I'll sacrifice my vote, even though my college experience is not impressive. But please, what is wrong with these people? I think that they don't pay close attention to politics, um, to actual politics, like watch press conferences with Biden. I think they just watch like CNN or MSNBC or they read, you know, the happy stories that they're they're sold on these media websites. But I don't think that they really follow a lot. So they don't see Biden sort of stuttering or making up words or talk, talking gibberish. Maybe I I have no idea. I think on every by every metric, this has been a very bad presidency so far. You know, the economy sucks. We have inflation. Now there's food and product shortages. 
Right. Um, we have unemployment. Um, people are locked up to some de- some degree. He's constantly pushing vaccines on on people. Um, then he's forcing their employers to fire them if they don't get vaccinated. I mean, what this isn't these are not signs of good times here. No. And I mean, I think it's far worse. It's been worse than I thought. Um, And I, I think even people who hated Trump and supported Biden, you can see the National Review crowd, they're just so alarmed at what's happening under the Biden presidency. Well, oh, okay. I don't, I'm not, I don't even fuck them. I mean, seriously, I know. fuck you. Because I, yep. everybody knew what was going to happen and they pretend like they're just shocked that it, things have turned out like this. I mean, come on. Yep. You, you bought yes. the ticket, now take the ride. That's my yep. attitude. That's right. He's your dude. He is yours. You own him. You know? Exactly He's, right. He's your your dude, your your candidate, your 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 dude. So I I don't know where this is going to go. It's certainly every day is worse every time Biden. I think he's in Chicago today, actually. Oh, God. Thanks for the warning. OK, heads up. Heads up. Oh, wait, he is. He's going he's going up north, I think, to I'm in the south suburbs. He's going going to the north suburbs where your people are, Liz. He's going up there. Oh, right. Yep. My tribe is there. Your tribe's um, there. Yes. Yeah, Friendly he, territory. I he, is, is, he, I think, is he talking about, I, I, I can't remember what I wrote this morning because I, you know, I'm old person who doesn't remember anything anymore. But I think he's, um, yes, he's re- delivering remarks on the importance of the COVID-19 vaccine requirements. <laughs> he's touring a construction site and then he's giving, delivering remarks in a couple hours. So there's time for you to go down there should you want to see it in person. And he's delivering remarks on the importance of COVID-19 vaccine requirements. So. Great. That's got to be tense. Another, another Biden in front of the microphone uh, event. It's got to be very nerve wracking for the the White House staff. Well, the good news for him is that the very compliant Chicago media who once used to actually do a good job holding people to account and now just cowers in the presence of whatever politician is in front of them. So if any of them are there, we can guarantee they won't get any t- Biden won't get any tough questions. So, well, if, if assuming they allow, you know what I mean? Assuming they allow questions to be asked. Yes. True. I mean, he might just give remarks and then they'll just immediately like whisk him away really fast and <laughs> put like a bag over his head and throw him in the back of a van and be like, get out of here. Load him up on applesauce. Nobody could talk to you and ensure. Um, so that was absolutely, uh, cre- again, more gibberish from Biden. And the other big thing that happened this week is that we have a Facebook whistleblower um, alleged. And I say whistleblower in air quotes. I'm using air quotes because this whistleblower has like a PR team. She has a whole operation behind her. And I know it's going to be hard to believe when I tell you this. So I hope you're sitting down. Uh But she is being handled by the Trump impeachment lawyers, not Trump's lawyers, the other side's lawyers. So she's yes. So this is whole thing is a manufactured whistleblower. She's left the company a couple months ago. Her basic 
point. And I think in one sense, strategically, it's smart. It's about the way that Facebook ignores the harm to children um, mm -hmm. because they are just interested in getting engagement on their platforms. And if you don't know, you probably should know that Instagram is also owned by Facebook. And so she came forward to say that Facebook is really prioritizing things that will garner engagement over, I don't know, safety, meaning that the most radical, wild conspiracy theories or crazy provocative things are what is prioritized in the Facebook algorithm. And this is, of course, at the end of at the expense of kids, which is, you know, has always been an effective way to get what you want is to say it's for the children, which is, you know, page out of Hillary Clinton's book. So we know that. Um, so she that's what she basically testified in before Congress. Uh, they really got that committee happening very quick. Whenever people say, oh, it takes so long to do things in in Washington, D.C. Really? What, how long did it take to get this this committee hearing after she came forward? Like formally Sunday on Seriously. 60 Minutes, she revealed herself. And then Monday, there's fucking hearings. OK, yeah, it was a hot minute. Mm -hmm. I'll orchestrate it. Good point. Yep. So and her position was, of course, there needs to be some other uh, out, you know, watchdog for Facebook. And that, of course, should be the government because the the government, the Democrats, the left that controls the government right now and always control pretty much has always controlled the government they are not against censorship you know a lot of people have problems with facebook um they but they have different problems with facebook most people on the right have problems with the way that they censor people on the right people on the left have problems that they don't censor people on the right enough <laughs> so right. what her solution is believe it you know surprise surprise is you know we need to give this authority to the government which is, you know, exactly what the Democrats want. And it's not a surprise because she, this woman is a Democrat donor. She's associated with Democrats in the past. She's not just some conscientious objector to what's going on with Facebook, um, you know, because they want government control of Facebook. So they do, they know it's, it's powerful when people can connect and communicate with each other without a filter. And the filter previously was the media. Right. Media was was responsible for putting in front of you what you needed to know about about things, what the facts were. And so that, you know, you were not exposed to something you were really a lot of people were made to feel before the Internet. A lot of people were made to feel alone. They felt, oh, I'm the only one that holds these political positions. I'm the only one who thinks this, you know, because the media has done such a great job of making it look like people uh, you know, their point of view is, you know, widespread. It's normal. It's all over the place. Everybody believes it except you. And then once you have the Internet, before it got regulated, uh, you know, we people found each other and they were like, hey, it's not just me. It's a lot of people. And so, you know, as long as there's unfettered and free communication, you know, you you have the possibility that people will mobilize against the regi the current regime. So they want to get they want to knock that down. They want to stop that. Um, yeah, this is uh, going to be interesting how this all unfolds, where it goes from here. Um, I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? Because you've been covering I mean, you've been paying close attention to this. So what do the Democrats do with this? No, I think they're going to start some legislation. I think they're going to come up with some like 
agency or sub agency whose job it is to, um, you know, force Facebook to account for its decisions or give it decisions, you know, and once the government gets involved and I and 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 I feel bad for Facebook in this sense is that they spend so much money trying to buy politicians and for this to happen, you know. They spend a ton of money lobbying. So does Google. So does Amazon. So does Twitter. Well, I don't know about Twitter, but these other companies, they spend a ton of money lobbying and buying off politicians. I mean, we've seen politicians that are, I'm not going to name names, but we, on the right, that you would think you, you scratch your head and you're like, why are you defending Google? Why are you defending Amazon? Well, because they've donated a lot of money. That's why. And to 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 their campaigns um so i i do think that the democrats are going to try and pass some legislation a lot of people on the right want them to repeal the section 230 of the communications act which would hold the companies liable right right now the companies have an immunity because they claim that they're simply a tool it's like your phone, you know, you don't right. sue your phone company because of something that ha- is said to you over the phone because it's just, you know, it's just wires, right? It's just wires and a handset and that's, that's, that's all. And you're paying for service. Um, but what the, at least in the beginning of the internet, they wanted to encourage innovation. And so they said to these platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all of them, you know, okay, you're just providing a service. You're not liable for things set on the service. The problem is that these websites, these businesses, these um, platforms do curate what is on, what appears on them. They do. They pick and choose. Twitter's always banning people. Twitter shadow bans people. We all remember yep. what happened to the Hunter Biden laptop story. That's just the big, that's one of the most obvious things that's ever happened. But, you know, we know people were shadow banned on Twitter. Facebook, same thing. People um, see their website traffic just plummet because all of a sudden Facebook has decided that they're going to, they're going to, you know, hide or not promote or, uh, you know, not show the postings of nonprofit groups, websites, they're not going to, you know, they're going to hide them from people's feeds. So because, but that's editorial, right? Then you're not a tool anymore. You're editorial. So, um, you know, you're a publishing platform. You're, you're like the New York times. You need to be held accountable for your editorial decisions and the decision to allow certain things to happen. That's, that's one of my positions. So I do think some legislation is going to be introduced. It's not going to be about that. It's going to be about oversight or some new congressional committee or some new agency that's going to be under the DOJ or something. I guarantee you this is what they're what they're rolling towards. So but I'm of the opinion. I do think social media is very bad for kids and for for children and teenagers. Um, and I I think that if these companies had a soul or any moral compass, they would simply ban the use of their product for anyone under the age of 18 and just say, you can't, you don't, you can't go on social media or 18 because I see this and you, I know we're, we're the same on this. You know, we grew up without this. You know, we grew up without this. We had normal childhoods, teenage years, college years without having a digital collar around, you know, in our hands all the time with whatever bullying and now you have a generation or two of people that have no social skills they have no 
they don't know how to relate to people because their relationships are through these platforms instead. I don't know. Julie, do you agree with me? What do you think? You've got two, you two daughters. So tell me what you think. I mean, I do have two daughters and they were, they grew up basically my oldest daughter, um, you know, got her first phone. I think she was 13 or so. Um, and she, she'll be 21 this month. So my girls grew up basically as this new technology was emerging and, you know, as much as we monitored her phone, we had security settings on it, you know, wanted to make sure she wasn't doing anything, you know, showing boys, any, you know, just like the normal right. stuff you do with teenagers. But it went from a place where we were monitoring her text to monitoring her Instagram. She was not allowed to have a Twitter account, obviously. But then once things like and <laughs> these kids are not on Facebook, but once Snapchat came along, to me, that was a total game changer because they could every minute is photographed. You can send, you know, you have private Snapchat stories, then you have public ones. And don't there's no way there's no way to monitor it. She was in high school by that point. Um, and so that really was. And now and Snapchat is owned by is it owned by Facebook? Who owns Snapchat? I don't know. That really became Liz the, the game changer. And you could just tell this change in and my younger daughter's not as much as my older one. Um, but you could just tell that I mean you could not you couldn't get you couldn't get her attention for ten minutes or anyone's attention. I mean, I have pictures of her sitting outside in high school with a bunch of her friends, they're all laying out and they're all on their phones. Um, and so I guess it if you're popular, I guess that that's okay. But what it's creating is this huge class of very, very lonely kids because um, you don't go to the lunchroom or say college campus anymore. You don't go to the public spaces where you used to make friends or even in class because everyone's staring at their phones and there's no way to interact or talk to 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 make those uh, connections and relationships. And they're not living in the moment. You know, everything is orchestrated. And for especially young girls who deal with weight problems or, you know, they're not as pretty as so and so. It's really, I think, debilitating. And I will tell you as a parent, as I was stay at home mom. I was there every minute, you know, watching them. The most involved parent, especially once they hit high school, you simply cannot keep a hold on it. And so. Well, I believe I, you because I had a stay at home mom and you would not believe the shit I got away with in high school and we didn't even have <laughs> phones. So No, that's by choice, Liz. There's a <laughs> lot of things we do not want to deal with. We know that's happening and right, we're like, right. nope, never saw it. Never heard it. Nope, nope. Don't know anything about it. It was by design. I feel bad for these kids because you can't get away from the phone. It's like if you have a bad day at school, you can you can go home, you can go in your room, you read a book. But now mm -hmm. you go home from school and now you, it begins all anew, right, on the social media, on people saying nasty things to you about your pictures or whatever the hell goes on on Snapchat. And I just think it's really, it is irresponsible. It seems like there's absolutely no ethics in Silicon Valley where this is concerned. You know, for anyone to say, um, yeah, this isn't good. There's a documentary called The Social, oh God, I just watched oh, it again. yes, I had some friends of mine, mom friends told me about it. I know what you're I talking about. I can't, I social, remember. Not social, social dilemma. 
dilemma, the social, right? The social dilemma. And a lot of these people, they're, they're, they were in the tech world high, you know, at high levels and at sort of at the ground level, when these things were building, they don't let their kids use them. Yeah. You know, they don't let their kids you, you know, use, use these phones. I think at the beginning, nobody really predicted, you know, it's hard to predict, no. um, what, what was, where it was going to go, how bad it was, um, and what this was going to turn into. But I think at this point, I mean, we know this isn't good. These kids, they have no person, they don't have human skills because they just relate to people in a different way. You, you cannot say to someone's face the way you would talk to them or to, or leave comments on their Instagram photos, you know, or these big bullies, you know, saying, oh, you look so fat, you know, someone would punch yeah. you in the face if you tried that in real life. Yeah. So anyway, that's. And um, I do think at least my daughters will, I mean, especially my oldest one who, like I said, she was growing up just as all this technology and we had no idea. I mean, it has, it will have, and has long-term impacts on their lives, on their, on their attention span, on their focus, on their priorities of what's important. You know, I would tell her, especially in high school, she would get worked up about something or, you know, somebody, you know, then there's pictures of so-and-so they're at a party and you're not, or, you know, a boyfriend, you break, you know, remember you broke up with a boyfriend and the biggest thing you would do is like drive by their house 10 times yeah. and see what was going on. Well, now you see it. Yep. So it's just a whole I never did other- that. That's wrong. Yes, you did. Really? We all did. By the way, Dan Vissers no. of Naperville, if you only knew how many times I drove past your house, you would be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just, it, it, so if I had a young daughter now, knowing what I know, it would, I would have managed it a lot differently. Um, and so. Also, parents are less technically advanced like you, you kind of have to have a level of tech savvy to, to know what also the things about the phones that the kids know so much better because that's all they do, you know? And that, so parents, I think are at a disadvantage and, and, you know, a lot of parents don't even know how long before parents figured out Snapchat was around because they thought everyone was on Facebook, you know, it just keeps changing. It does. And who knows what'll be next? I mean, who knows what platform will be next? Uh, I, I don't know of anything that's more intrusive that, or could be more intrusive than Snapchat, um, but I'm sure that they'll think of something. Um, and it's just, <laughs> just wait, just wait. Famous last words. So I don't know. Do you think the breakup of of Facebook is inevitable? It's hard to see how this doesn't happen. But well, then I, what do you get? You get a thousand more diseases instead of just one pathogen you've got. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to say because there. Are, I mean, I don't know what the legal, like constitutional grounds for this is, but I do think these companies should be broken up. If you notice, like Google owns so many different, you know, has so many different sub companies. They own YouTube, um, uh, many other things that we don't even know about. Facebook owns Instagram. Um, Amazon is used to be a bookstore. Now it basically sells everything and does all the web hosting, so much web hosting. So I, I do think this stuff needs to be, um, some of these companies do need to be broken up, but it's really a much deeper, a deeper, a deeper problem than, yes. than that. The, the, the problem is that these companies 
lobby for regulations that prevent competition, right? And we saw that with Parler. Um, right. What happened with Parler was that um, I don't even know who said it because it turns out not to be true. But but I guess elected officials or I guess an appropriate appropriate spokesperson, you know, came out and said, oh, the January 6th insurrection was planned on Parler. And then all of a sudden, you know, Google took it out of its its Play Store. So then you couldn't download Parler on an Android device. Apple took it out of the uh, the Apple store. You couldn't put it on your Apple device, your iPhone. And then Amazon refused to host their service. So I'm not saying, look, I, I mean, I was on parlor. I, I haven't posted there in forever. I, you know, I'm trying to cut down. I'm trying to get off of social media, to be honest. But, you know, parlor was a smaller startup. And look how, look at how it just, all its enemies just crushed it. You know, these big companies. So there's a lot of, you know, lobbying money that I've mentioned earlier that goes into different regulations that govern these tech companies that are good for big companies and bad for competition. So we need to make it easier for competition, right? Like right. I see people on Twitter, oh, Twitter sucks. Fuck you, Jack. You know, it's all I see this or Twitter censor, but <laughs> get, get the fuck off of it. What are you doing? I mean, I know I love Twitter's- people who do that. And it's like, all right, we'll just get off of it then no one why are you there yeah right twitter is is a value because of the number of people who use it that's the way to hurt it is to not use it and and so so stop but there needs to be you know good alternatives and there are alternatives and then some of them get smeared i know there's like i don't know i i have an account at gab i got a million years ago i don't think i've ever posted there I don't, I don't log in there. I'm not sure what goes on there, but you know, that gab it's, it's not, you know, the Nazis, white supremacists or other, other places that are like more or competitive. There's some getters, another one. I'm not right. on there. I you know, know. they kind of, they kind of smear that so that the, the, the left who is so desperate to control the dialogue, um, they, try and ruin it so that you do have to go you're almost forced by a funnel into like a Facebook Twitter environment or Google where you are going to get you know subject to their whims and their you know political interests so I do think that there needs to be more effort taken to make sure that we have a free market situation so that there are more alternatives for people and honestly we're moving into an environment of decentralized decentralization and that's coming along to the point where you're going to have the places or websites or platforms set up where it's not it's not centralized so you can't you can't ban things you can't erase them you can't delete them you can't shadow ban users so i do think we're getting there and that's probably what needs to happen to just to stop so that's my my opinion all right. That's a, that's a good one. And it's probably a hundred percent correct. Oh, thank you. Well, we'll go with we that. are almost out of time. And if you're wondering why it's only been like 40 minutes is because we have a special guest that we're going to be interviewing in the next part of our show. So Julie, tell our listeners who they are about to get a treat and listen to. We speak with Jeffrey Tucker, who has been uh, in outspoken 
foe of lockdowns, uh, instrumental in preparing the Great Barrington Declaration, which just celebrated its one year anniversary, which I felt like at the time was pretty pivotal in helping to shape some of the more scientific discussions against especially lockdowns. Um, And so he's on Twitter a lot. He runs uh, the uh, Brownstone Institute and really has been a leading voice uh, in of clarity or attempted clarity in the pandemic uh, pandemonium. So uh, we, we will chat with him. All right. Well, stay tuned. Liz and I are very excited to have with us today special guest, uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Is it Dr. Jeffrey Tucker? Well, not really. Uh, my father and my brother are all doctors, but I never uh, I never went there. So. All right. That, that's okay. Liz and I are not doctors either. Well, actually, Liz is. Don't you? I a am PhD? a doctor. No. <laughs> I worked very hard for that, but not a, not the kind that can do an organ transplant. Um, <laughs> I'm a PhD, so it's not really a doctor. You don't have to call me doctor like Jill Biden. I never <laughs> make anyone call me that. That's horrible. Well, I have a lowly BA in speech communications from a public college in Illinois, so I'm low man on the totem pole. But anyway, uh, Jeffrey, we are so pleased to have you today. Um, And obviously, we have been following your work from the beginning. You have been very outspoken since all of this COVID craziness started almost amazingly, almost two years ago. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, and, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about your work, but you are um, head of the president of Brownstone Institute in Austin, Texas. You are the author of a book called The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next, available on Amazon and uh, a Kindle version, if anyone wants to pick that up. And you also spend some time on social media trying to fight the good fight against covid craziness, lockdowns, masks, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, sure, it's my pleasure. So just to be clear, I, I'm, I'm the publisher of this book, which is um, The Great COVID Panic. And I, I, I and, and it was fascinating to me because when I founded Brownstone, um, I just like, you know, I had this idea that we needed an institute that was devoted to understanding public health you know, within the framework of a free society. And <laughs> obviously we need that. And, but, uh, you know, you know, things were always a little foggy at the beginning. I just had an inkling of this. And then, I don't know, like the next day I get this manuscript in the mail from Gigi Foster and Paul Fridgers in the UK. And Gigi is an American who's teaching in Sydney, of all places. Oh and and Michael Baker, who's also, I think, in Sydney. And so they sent me this manuscript, and I just even from the very first word, I thought, "Oh my God, this is incredible," and and I it just my heart was racing. So I knew because I got it at about 7 p.m. and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to skip a night's sleep. So I did. I I I finished it like you know 12 hours later, and I wrote them and I said, you know, what are your plans for this book? Because I think Brownstone can publish it, and and they said, well, we're gonna we're going to privately publish it. And I thought, okay, that's a disaster because it's the greatest book on the topic, the greatest book on the topic, and that's not going to happen. And the authors were like, well, but who are you? I mean, Brownstone suit, you know, doesn't even exist. And I said, yeah, just, just give me time, give me time. So they agreed to let me publish it. And um, 
but the contract was that I had to get out and get it out in five weeks <laughs> with editing, indexing, cover design, you know, just everything in the midst of founding this new institute. But anyway, it gave me a kind of a raison d'etre. And uh, and the book is just getting great reviews at Amazon and everybody's reading it. I I like the book mostly because it tells the truth. And I think so. So I think it's capable of changing minds because it's so blunt. It's so obvious about it's, it's so clear about everything. I just can't imagine that anybody, even the most misophobic uh, you know, covid justice warrior uh, vaccinating mandator, you know, could read this book and come away not just shaken fundamentally. And that's why I published it, because I think it's capable of changing minds. Well, it's been one year, a little one year and two, three days since the great Barrington Declaration came out. Um, what are your thoughts on <laughs> where we went <laughs> in the in that in the last year from this declaration? So I, I, of course, I've had a lot of times to reflect on this because um, it's a one year anniversary. And I can just tell you that uh, we put that event together uh with really with a sense of naivety i mean there were, there was a the scientists you know this is october we had been in lockdown since like march and and there confusion was everywhere i mean still you know the disease panic was all over the place the mandates were increasing governments were violating people's rights churches were still closed there was a sense of like you know travels blocked you know it's like what what is going on and the scientists said, well, the problem is that we're not getting the word out to journalists. They seem to not know how to write about this topic because they don't seem to know anything about cell, cell biology and public health. That is, public health is not just about COVID, but, 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 but health more generally. So what we have to do is educate people. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a reasonable thing. Let's get together some journalists. So I started writing journalists in New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I said, how about you come learn? Uh, from the best of the best. These are the be be three of the best epidemiologists in the world. I mean, one of them is is Sinecha Gupta, who's like this theoretical epidemiologist and a, and a godlike figure in that profession. So this is your chance to come and learn from these people. And they all said no. Huh. This is odd. I mean, they just didn't, they didn't want to know. So you know, wow. I finally, I found David Zweig, who has done a lot of writing for the the New York Times and the Atlantic since that time. Uh, John Tamney at Real Clear Markets and then another journalist who works for the British Medical Journal who's written a lot of good stuff. So it's just the three of them. You know, I really imagined that I would get like major media there and they would just like sit at the feet of the epidemiologists and they would explain cell biology and epidemiology and public health to them and they would go back to the newspapers and write good things, right? That's how silly I was. Uh, <laughs> we all were, and uh, it didn't happen that way. And I organized that meeting in, I'm going to say like less than ten days. You know, I mean, because Martin uh, Kuldorf uh, wanted the meeting. He said, "Let's just educate the journalists." And I said, "Okay, um, how about this date?" And it was very late in October. And he said, "Well, the problem with that date is that it gets us a little too close to the election. I really don't want this to be political. At the same time." Uh, we have to speak. Uh, so the sooner we do it, the better. Let's do it this weekend. Or, you know, th this is like maybe Thursday. And he said, uh, you know, a week from Saturday. 
And I was like, oh, wow, that's uh, pretty intense, but okay, let's go. So uh, it all unfolded, and they made this declaration, and, you know, there's smiles all around, and and we thought um, that it was going to make a big difference, and people were going to finally hear the truth. I mean, it's like, I just thought it was some fluke in the universe, like some change in the matrix, that people were not thinking clearly about this topic. It was very strange for me. Uh, to be around in those days, and I thought this declaration would really help people understand some basics of public health, to, re- to recall what everybody knew like two years earlier, or what I thought everybody knew two years earlier. Um, so I was not at all prepared for the hysteria that it generated. Um, you know, for the international press and for for so many, you know, like, what do you say, like, scientists, uh, academic scientists and media darlings to come out and denounce it as they did, you know, and and the the grounds on which they denounced it were very strange. I mean, they were like, well, this this whole declaration is funded by a right wing Coke funded think tank. Okay. I mean, I'm looking at this going, you know, I'm shouting out to our finance person. Do we, do we get Coke money? <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's like, nah, of course, I don't know, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get back that's to you. That's one that. of the go-to discrediting. Yes, that's right. Moves that is made whenever you now see something discredited in the mainstream media because it's quote funded by Coke money. No matter what it is, you, right. you're watching this maneuver in a, in action. Well, it's strange because there are finance persons say, "Well, I'm, I'm looking here at records. I see that six years ago they funded a conference in Palm Springs or that worked. Colorado or something. I don't know what it was. It was like a $60,000 grant to pay the travel and expenses of some people to speak at, I don't know, yada, yada. I wasn't even working for them at the time. And nobody even, nobody there even remembered this happened, right? But we hadn't gotten a dime from them. I mean, it would have been fine if we had, but the fact is we weren't. And then they were, then other people were saying they were funded by the oil lobby. I was like, wait, are we funded by oil? (laughs) Another good one, yeah. and, And they said, well, you know, we have some assets that are currently uh, uh, under uh, management, and those are mostly invested in index funds, among which are things like, you know, oil companies. It's like, oh, okay. So we get dividends or, you know, whatever. We have a normal stock, po- stock portfolio like anybody else. So, but not, as far as I know, funded. And then they said, then they said we are climate change denying. Oh, yes. And, there and then you I was go. like, Wait, I, right. I, I don't really even know anything about that topic. Have we written anything about the climate? And they're like, well, I don't know. About 10 years ago, we had a conference on that topic. And I look back at the book that we produced by it. It's a transcript of scientists just talking about, I don't know, the weather and the climate. And, you know, kind of, but it's, it was all very strange. And then this idea of right-wing libertarian. Okay, so um, AIR was founded in 1933. The word libertarian didn't even basically exist uh, then. Uh, it was in use in the progressive era and they fell out of use and came back into use after in the post-war period in the 1950s. But there was no sense in which uh, this institution ever identified itself as libertarian. And right wing, I mean, the founder was, you know, in no sense of like what you would call a rightist. I mean, the, the terminology didn't even exist in those days. Like people just didn't think of it that way. Um, so there wasn't a word of this that was true. And so I never really knew how to respond to it. You know, that's the thing. So I just mostly just ignored it and said, oh, okay, well, this is, I wish you'd talk about the issues and not um, the institution. Um, well, this is so they don't have to talk about the issues. That's right. right. This, is, this is to wipe it off 
and out of the sphere of conversation. So just now everybody's learned a lesson from, I think, among many this last year about how we um, just dismiss or erase ideas that we don't want to actually debate or acknowledge. So I'm yeah, sorry, and and the, the other thing is, you know, I don't know how to, you know, it's, it's, you know, what's the strategy for responding to these things? And I think, you know, part of the problem is you you sort of amplify the attacks on you if you respond to them. So I was really against any kind of direct response uh, for that reason. Um, so people blame me for that now. They say, oh, you should have, you know, come out with a, a press release or whatever. But I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure about it. I don't think I would have. It's not as if. So here's the problem. The critics were not um, sincere. They were not genuine. Uh, they were just smearing. So you can't really refute a smear with a press release, you know. Um, that's not going to change their tactics. It's just going to uh, give them attention. So, so well, I let's read. So we, I want to remind people what uh, part of what the uh, Great Barrington Declaration said. This is very common sense stuff. But the outrage was because really everyone in the medical field, public health, et cetera, had been bullied into silence or complicity with the overarching narrative about COVID lockdowns, et cetera. So this is very straightforward, logical talking to people, which and this is part of it. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection, while rather protecting those who are at higher risk. We call this focused protection. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. This is basically how we've approached any virus or disease or illness for centuries. Yes. Um, and in the meantime, our children's lives were being completely upended their education, their livelihoods, all the rites of passages destroyed. Um, and so it made no sense to especially be doing this to our children at the same time locking down elderly people uh, who suffered all sorts of other traumatic and, and, and fatal consequences of these lockdowns. So, but it was common sense that everybody used up until, you know, March of 2020. You guys weren't saying anything radical. Um, and finally talking about compassion for those who were unnecessarily caught up in these draconian mitigation measures. So that was the kind of common sense that the news media and obviously the public health establishment, the Democratic Party, and a lot of Republicans did not want to hear a year ago. For whatever reason. I mean, it was very unclear to us at the time. But, you know, I, I have to tell you that um, uh, something strange had happened that I, I think was lost on me. Um, you know, 20 years ago, the Great Branton Declaration, as you say, would have been completely normal. But starting... Uh, about in 2006, there was this new kind of school of epidemiology. It was all based on disease modeling. And that itself was rooted in the idea of uh, uh, that you can control a virus through human separation and social management. And they were just itching for a chance to try out their theories. Now, when it was first promoted in 2006, every, everybody was against it. Um, but, you know, 
15 years later, uh, they had recruited, uh, you know, they had turned into their own little cabal, you know, these modelers and separators and segregationists and uh, zero COVID people, you know, that uh, this pretense that you can control a virus had had sort of taken over, or not taken over, but had achieved like a majority presence within the epidemiological profession and public health. And we didn't really know that was happening, but it was happening. And so, um, you know, they tried to deploy all these schemes in 2009, but everybody was distracted by the financial crisis. Then they tried again in 2012 and 2013 with SARS-CoV-1, but it never came to the United States. And uh, it seems like there's another time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, 2009 with H1, H1N1, I guess. Um, so suddenly 2020 arrives and, and, and it, you know, it was their moment uh, because – the, the the national news media was very interested in causing chaos for the Trump administration. That was a very driving, a big driving force. Um, and they wanted to deploy their little schemes. Bill Gates had been throwing money all over the, you know, to public health departments all over the world and the World Health Organization. And he's a, a basically a crazy person. Um, he doesn't know the difference between a biological virus and a computer virus. He really doesn't. And so, yeah, <laughs> that's well yeah. said. No, I mean, really, I mean, it's just it, it's it's just he's a crazy person, and uh, but he has all the money, so the money talks, and these people are all just craven. So some somehow it was like this perfect storm, and and uh, nutty modelers and and um, central planners just, just took over the took over the world. I mean, it was really something to uh, something to see, and now you know we're in this awkward position. Where, you know, even though we're intelligent, you know, modern people with the best technology in history and so on and so on, we have like a near universal denial of basic scientific truths like natural immunity, right? Exposure, you know, immunity through exposure. And we pretend like it doesn't exist. I mean, every vaccine mandate is premised on this idea. And it's preposterous. I mean, we're living in an unenlightened uh, period of our our lives, where basic science that we've known for two and a half millennia, you know, uh, you know, is just being denied by by everybody. You know, Fauci d- denies it every week on TV. It's unbelievable. But why do you think that? Um, I know, just like we talked about earlier, it's not because they don't have the facts at their disposal. Because when you present them information. You know, as you said, you had assumed, oh, they just don't understand what's going on. Let me, you know, here's some information for you. And now you can understand it since that's not the case. What is what is the case? Like, why are we seeing such a overhaul of our traditional and accepted understandings of science? So this question, why? I mean, I've been asked this question probably a thousand times over the last. Oh, I thought I was special. No, I, like the last. And, and nice you've, try, asked, Dr. Liz. you've asked that question. You've <laughs> asked that question. Right? I mean, like, I, I just really, I, I, I guess in the end, I take recourse to an, an intellectual explanation. I think that, I think that humanity is capable of, of losing its mind and losing its uh, understanding of, of things. I mean, there's a 300 year period there and the, um, uh, late Middle Ages, in which people forgot that they had cured scurvy, right? So people didn't know what caused scurvy and how to get rid of it, and so it was just like this 
this weird hole opened up in the in the human mind. And uh, that's that's what I think that, that that it happened over this immunity issue and viruses that we've got so good at controlling pathogens, not controlling them, but endemicity of most pathogenic uh, diseases is just part of the human uh, experience now. And unfortunately, we've been, you know, 30, 40, 50 years uh, in a period in which nobody paid attention to ninth grade biology and nobody cared anymore. And and we we were easily susceptible to medieval superstitions that diseases are like miasmas that float around in the air and and uh, I can stay away from them by wearing a mask or putting up a piece of plexiglass between you and me. Oh. Uh, so we fell for all this this uh, pre-modern disease theory uh, because because so many people were ignorant, and also we were being trolled by these highly intelligent but essentially crazy people uh, who believed in computer models and and um, the ability of uh, governments to control. Um, viruses and 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 it's it 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 really it, to me it all comes down to intellectual failure failure you know a lot of people blame the things like the world economic forum or you know bill gates or you know the anti-trump movement and i think uh, the media social media big tech you know wanted everybody to stay home um there's a lot of factors here but in the end i think i think it all traces to uh to a kind of a cultural change where we, we we no longer understood what we once knew, and we're having to rediscover that now. So what what happens now? Uh, I mean, here we are. It seems like the hole keeps is digging deeper and deeper. Yeah. No one can come out now and say, okay, originally we thought this was a good idea. It wasn't. And now we're seeing these devastating consequences for our children, for the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But they keep doubling down. So today Pfizer announced that they are have uh, received emergency use authorization for a vaccine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for five. To- anyway, yeah, it's it's preposterous because, of course, there, there's, a, there's a vanish like almost close to zero danger to children from this disease. So. Mm-hmm. So you come up with a potion to inject into children and say, oh, look, uh, this kid didn't go to the hospital or die. That's a success. It's, right. it's crazy. You know, I, I I passed on a joke on on Twitter this morning, not really a joke, but I said, look, I've invented a vaccine or, or a shot for bananas that, that makes them not talk. And I, I tried it on every banana uh, that I have <laughs> in my house. And, and, and it works. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So, so I don't know. These people are becoming ever more uh, brazen and unscientific and rapacious. But, um, but the disease panic is so pervasive that I think I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be clamoring for the shot and stick stick it into their kids and and so on. I mean, this 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 vaccine is not the same as a polio vaccine or a measles vaccine. It's, it's just not a. a a coronavirus is a, a mutating virus. It's always going to be changing its clothes a lot. Um, it's got a lot of changes of wardrobes, and that's just the way it is. There's there's some pathogens that are that are mutate, and some are they're very stable. It's the stable ones for which for which you can invent, you have the vaccines like polio, and measles, but. Um, but some, something like a coronavirus, it, it's um, much more difficult. And there, there's some there's some pathogenic diseases out there that, for which you can never have a vaccine. Everybody knows that. And 
Um, the coronaviruses like this fall somewhere in between. Um, but, you know, Pfizer executives themselves have admitted, you know, in that great Project Veritas video, they said, uh, you know, our vaccine just covers the wild type and only the, the symptoms. But a natural infection is uh, much better, much more robust, much more long lasting and, and more comprehensive. There's nothing surprising about that. Like, we've always known this. I mean, Sinatra said this to me at the Great Barrington Declaration Conference. We were standing at a cocktail party. She said, you know, natural infection is much better um, than, than, than any vaccine that they could ever come up with. And I, I took note of that when she said that. So I researched in the meantime. Of course, she's, she's right. But I think what I think happened. That really gives it. That really gives away the game, though, is their attitude toward natural immunity versus yeah. vaccines. Because if it were really a case of, you know, protecting as much of the public as possible, you would right. think they would be really excited that all the people who have recovered from coronavirus they don't have to worry about, right? They're naturally immune. This is great, right? Less people to worry about, you know. But instead, it's like it doesn't matter, and they. I've always found that as someone who is not a scientist or a, bio, a biologist, I've always found it curious right from the start why you would give a vaccine to someone who has natural immunity. It just makes no sense. It makes but no sense. I think it, 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 it gives up, the, it, it gives up the, the, the game. You know, that this isn't about that, about protecting people. That's right. So I think what happens is that the, Biden, the Biden administration discovered that there was a kind of a a weird geographic overlap in the amount of uh, vaccine hesitancy or the unvaccinated and uh, red states um, to a much greater extent than blue states, much more compliant with the vaccine. So they decided um, this is a great opportunity to punish DeSantis and Abbott. So they imposed a kind of nationwide um, uh, mandate as a, as a way of kind of, uh, of you know, obtaining some, some something like political hegemony. That's that's what drove it. And but now other people have found out that this is true too. So you see institutions being purged all over the country. You know, so it's hospitals. You know, at a very time when we need, uh, you know, healthcare workers, we're we're firing nurses and healthcare workers all over the country. Um, the military is being purged of political uh, dissidents. Uh, so they believe. You know. Uh, anybody who resists the vaccine is more than likely going to be less friendly to Biden. So they're they're happy uh, to have them lose their jobs and and not be able to provide for their families. So it's like, you know, um, that's that's the price you pay for not being a compliant um, uh, citizen in Biden's America. And most, I think, alarming is the purging of academia. And that is really starting right now because these mandates are being imposed on universities under threat. And some of the most principled faculty members are like, look, I, I suffered from COVID for two days, two weeks, whatever it is. I'm not, and it's especially scientists, I'm not going to get this vaccine. Um, and they're all, they're being fired. They're, 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 they're a very good friend of mine is losing email access and all access to subscriptions and having his computers taken away um, in 10 days uh, at, an, at an Ivy League university. This is a highly accomplished right. science scientist, and his life is being ruined. And they're saying, they're saying you can you you're going to lose it all. You're going to lose everything. 
all you have to do is roll up your sleeve and let us stick this needle into your arm. And he's like, well, this violates every principle I've ever lived for. You know, I've, I've, I've fallen in love with science since I was a little boy. And I only wanted to be a scientist. And, and you can't make me do this. This is a little bit like if you, you know, want to put me on trial and said, you're going to hang me unless I say the world is flat. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. So he's finding himself giving up his uh, entire life, you know, at a highly prestigious institution. Um, but he's one of thousands, tens of thousands of, of uh, academics who are being purged from the universities right now. So, yeah, this is a, it's a real political purge. Um, that's, that's what's taking place. And that, even more incredibly, I think that's the reason, you know, it's, it's the reason. Yeah. That makes actually a lot of sense that this is not about, of course, anything related to COVID is not what it appears to be or how they portray it. This is the test between, you know, those who will submit, the people on the left who trust everything the government and public health experts and the news media tell them versus independent minded people, regardless of their political affiliation with Trump or the Republican Party or anyone else, just what we used to consider American liberties and mm-hmm. and freedom and choices, what what we wanted to do with our bodies, which used to be popular in the Democratic Party, like, say, a year or so ago and no sure. longer is. But you're right. This is a great way to purge these institutions of mm-hmm. people suspected of being mm-hmm. on the political right. It's something like that. But you know what? It's it's even it's stranger than that. I think. Um, I think what you just said is is generally true, but I can tell you that you know you know being in this realm, I've I've come in contact with a greater variety of philosophical orientations than I ever have in my entire life, and a lot of the people who write for Brownstone, um, I mean, they, they are from the left, and I think. Although I I don't actually care right? at this point I don't care if you're left or right as long as you're against um, brutality um, but I've I've just noticed that I've got a lot of dissidents from the left who are um, writing for Brownstone and and it's also the case that I run the salon and I'm meeting all these very interesting intellectuals from all points of view and they're um, hanging around each other and talking to each other because we're all united on the anti-lockdown cause, anti-mandate cause, and and I've been astonished by what's uh, what's happened. So they're they're I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's the difference between pr- you know, um, principled people, regardless of the political bent, uh, versus uh, subjugated, obsequious sellouts. I mean, that's you know, unscientific sellouts. I mean, I really think that's the real division here. And you're right, it tends to tack a little bit left and right in that way. But um, but but I think we're also entering, I think the, the COVID policies have, have caused us to enter into a new realm. It's like, are you an enlightened person who generally believes in functioning society and civilization? Or do you, do you want a top-down regulated world where the you know, creepy scientists, you know, get to manage the lives of hundreds of millions and billions of people. You know, that's really the difference, I think, between the two tribes at this point. Jeffrey, before we let you go, and this has been so fascinating, and I, I hope we can have you on again soon, um, could could you reimagine the uh, Great Barrington Declaration related to vaccines and what you're just talking about, the purge? Hmm. 
Is that something that, you know, would get? Because when that uh, declaration came out, it, I mean, at least people on our side right. who were desperate for some sure. expert imprimatur on, on our right. beliefs on this. Um, I'm just curious if that's something that's on your radar screen. Well, you're so sweet for asking that. Um, and I've thought about this a lot. Um, I guess my, my intuition tells me that sometimes things like that just happen one time and they can never be repeated, you know? Um, so I'm not sure... I do have the opportunity in mid-November to meet with a lot of these people, and many other people have been recruited in the meantime. We're all we're all gathering together, about a hundred of us. Um, and I've had people ask me this question: like, do you think there should be some open letter or a statement, or you know? And I just don't know the answer to that yet. I really don't. I I don't want to re- try to repeat, you know, the I guess you would call it the successes of the Great Branton Declaration, but Whatever we do, I think we, we need a decentralized and extremely malleable study, uh, I should say strategy, um, uh, uh, to confront you know, the new times in which we live. And I, I'm not sure exactly what we should do, but I, I'm certainly that, that, that everybody should sort of be creative, be innovative, and speak out. And, and remember that you know, every, you know, your podcast – you speak for millions of people who cannot speak. You know, every tweet you send, you're you're sending a tweet, echoing the the views of millions of people who who can't tweet. You know, so it's it's like we're in a position to speak, and we have a moral obligation to do so. Which gets me to my final point. I think much more important than declarations or strategies or even lawsuits or anything else is like the, these are times that call on us to be morally courageous to mm-hmm. take risks with our reputation, uh, to suffer the slings and arrows, you know, um, of grave misfortune and, and, um, and to stand up for what's, what's right. And even when you're shot down once, three times, 30 times, 3000 times, just keep pushing forward. Uh, The only successful way I've ever seen for anyone to make a real dent in history is to be morally courageous. It's the only real strategy that works. That was the essence of the Great Branton Declaration. And I think if we pursue that strategy going forward and through whatever the particulars are, as long as we are willing to stand up for what's right and never shrink from a fight, never shrink from telling the truth, we're going to overcome this and don't forget the reality is on our side, you know? Don't forget that. This is not really about ideology. It's not about your opinion, my opinion, or somebody else's opinion. There are fundamental truths that are at work here, and those truths concern virology, epidemiology, cell biology, but also certain truths about human nature. We want to be free. We want to be able to be free to choose. Um, Humanity will not forever live in cages. So let's rally around those ideas and be patient. I love that. Yes. Be determined and we're going to win. I love that. And it's sort of what our friend Lee Smith said a few weeks ago on this podcast, too, that being morally courageous, being willing to, you know, make sacrifices, but pushing forward, knowing that you have the truth and you have facts on your side. Uh, that's our only way out of this. So, Jeffrey, thank you so much. Those are really yeah. encouraging, uplifting words that we all need. And I'm sure our listeners will take uh, take some comfort in and hopefully some motivation. So 
Uh, We really appreciate all of your work. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week.